You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. In preparation for the sermon, I read a statement from somebody and it sparked my imagination. Here's the statement. The great business of life. What is the great business of life? So I googled the great business of life. And I found that a man named John Morley in the 19th century, a British statement said, the great business of life is to be, to do, to do without, and to depart. And I went, huh? Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States, said the chief business of the American people is business. That's it. You go to school, you build a career. That, I mean, that's the great business of life. Some people would say the great business of life is to raise well-adjusted kids, happy kids. Is there anything, as important as that is, is there anything more than that? Some people would say the great business of life is to get through the week to the weekend. You know, TGIF, do what I want to. Be happy. Some people would say the great business of life is to get to retirement so you can do your bucket list. You probably have a bucket list, things you want to do, places you want to go, things you want to accomplish before uh, you die. Is that, is that the great business of life? Why do we even talk about bucket list? It's that we know we have a limited amount of time. And we know time is running out. And 1 Peter 4 tells us the great business of life. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and I would ask you to stand in honor of God and His Word. Beginning with verse 1, 1 Peter 4. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. You use whatever version you happen to have on your phone or, or between covers of a, of a Bible. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. There it is. That is the great business of life, to live whatever time I have left, to know and to do the will of God. I mean, nothing's higher than that. He goes on. Verse 3. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That is people who are not Christians. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, Orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Sounds like a frat room, doesn't it? Frat house, animal house. Sounds a lot like much of America these days. With respect, verse 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and, and they malign you, they mock you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So that we're going to pray this week, moving toward Easter, pray for our friends we're inviting. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of, of sins. Verse 9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Some of you are so good at this. Some of you say, I haven't had anybody in my house in five years or in my apartment for 
for five years. I don't cook very well, and, and it's dirty. Blow the dust off, call out for pizza, invite some people in. That's what he's saying. This is radical if you'll do it. I mean, it sounds like just something ordinary. It's radical to practice hospitality. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word, and you can be seated. So he says, the great business of life is knowing and doing the will of God. And I love the way the message paraphrase puts it. It says this, the first two verses, since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. The great business of life is living for what God wants. Nothing higher. It's fulfilling God's purpose in your life. It's, it's doing the work that he's given you to do and called you to do. That's why we're studying this book, because he tells us how to do that. In fact, he tells us what the will of God is. The central passage in this uh, book of 1 Peter, the, the, the reason why he wrote it is found over in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Take a look at that. It really just says the same thing we just read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's God's will, that we live in such a way that highly resistant people find our faith attractive. We live in such a way that people look and, and, and they say, that's beautiful. It's, 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 it's beautiful. They, they, they give glory to God. The way we say it around here is God's will, our mission is to influence people toward Christ in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplace, our city, and our world. And there's a sense of urgency in what he, what he says here. He mentions time three different times. In verses 2 through 3, he says, for the rest of time, time that is past. In other words, God is giving you a limited amount of time to do his will. Your time is running out. And then in verse 5, he talks about unbelieving people around us. They have, a, they have a limited amount of time before they stand face to face with the judge of the universe. Their time is running out. And then in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. All of our time is running out. God said a day when it will, life as we know it will end. Jesus Christ returns in power and glory, establishes his kingdom, makes things right. And he says, that day is near. And you just hear the urgency as you read this. Your time is limited. Their time is limited. It's running out. Our time is running out. So there's the outline. Let's just talk through those one at a time. Your time is running out. I mean, no one knows how, how much time that, that, that you have. I went on the internet and there is a death clock on the internet. Did you know that? 
deathclock.com. And if you'll put in information like your gender and your age and your habits, like do you drink a lot, do you exercise, do you get enough sleep, and what's the stress level in your life, it will calculate the day you die. And it's got this clock that's rolling down. And it's a little eerie to look at that. And, of course, it, it doesn't take into account things like disease and car wrecks and uh, tornadoes and, and that kind of thing. But you get the point. Time is running out for you. you. You don't know how long you have. We all have limited time, and we need to decide what to do with it. And if you understand what the Bible says, you understand you don't have time to do everything. There are some things you must say no to. As Brian reminds me on a regular basis, thank you, Brian, some things we say no to in order to say yes to other things. So in verse 3, it says this, you spent enough time in the past, you wasting your life because of sin. No more. You have wasted enough time in your life. Last night, Ruthie and I were at an event and sat at a table with a young man and his wife who told us his story. He said when he was 16, he started drinking heavily. He had good parents and they were trying to help him. He said when he turned 18, he began with cocaine and, uh, and, and actually heroin. He said he was put in a treatment center and that's where he found Jesus. And after he got cleaned up and sobered up, he said, now I'm in college and I'm, I'm, I'm studying for the ministry and I think I'm going to be a professor at a seminary. But you heard his story, you heard him saying, I just wasted so much of my life. I, I just blew it away. And Peter says this, don't make the mistake of letting another day go by messing around with sin. Things you should have left years ago. You've got a limited amount of time to make your life count for God. And if you can think of your life in phases or in stages, I think it helps. You've got the years when you're a, a child, you're in school, and then years building a career or a family, and then years in midlife, and then years in retirement, and you get one shot at each stage. You have one and, one only, one and only life. You have one chance to live for Jesus in high school. You have one chance to be all out for Jesus in college. You have one run raising a, God, raising a godly family. You have one run through the white water of midlife. And you get one chance to finish strong in retirement. And it is so easy to slip into this way of thinking that I'll be a fully devoted follower of Christ and I will serve him in another stage. Won't happen. So how do, how do you maximize the time you have left? How, what does it mean? How do, you, how do you break the power of sin in your life? If you've spent enough time in the past wasting it with sin, how do you break the power of sin? Look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. There's one thing I wish I could get people to understand about living as a Christian is that a lot of it is a mental process. When you understand, understand what Christ did for you, who you are in him, how he has changed you by the power of the gospel, it affects the way you think. The way we think affects the way we feel, and the way we feel affects what we do. And if you want to change what you do, then change the way you feel. And the only way to change the way you feel is change the way you think. Now, we all know this. Let me give you an example. You go into a fast food restaurant. You don't have much time on your lunch hour. You're going to grab something to eat. And the, 
65-year-old woman at the counter is just not as fast as you think she should be, and you get a little aggravated at her. But suddenly you think, she doesn't want to be there. Nobody says, when I'm 65, I want to work at Arby's. She's probably divorced. She probably has no one to take care of her, and she's doing what she doesn't want to do just to survive. That's not just a teenager in a hoodie. That's a young man who's probably grown up without a dad, and he's been bounced from one foster home to another. Nobody to tell him he's loved, he is, he is valued. You never know what battle people are fighting. You never know what addiction she's dealing with. You never know what kind of disease he is working against. You never know how lonely she is. When you discipline yourself to think in this way, you're not so hasty to jump all over someone because they don't get your sandwich fast enough. You use your redeemed mind as a weapon. God gave you a weapon. It's your mind. And he says, if you will think like Jesus thinks, it changes the power of sin, breaks the power of sin in your life. So how did Jesus think? He says, arm yourself in the same, by thinking the same way as Jesus. How did Jesus think? He thought like this, and he said it many, many times in the gospel. I will suffer anything to avoid disobeying my father. I'll put up with anything rather than not do the will of my father. And he thought like this, I hate sin. I hate what it does to people. I hate how it saps people's souls and destroys marriages and destroys young people and takes people to hell. He said, I, I, I hate sin. So he, what does he do? He suffers in the flesh, it says. Any religion with a cross at the center of it is a scary religion. It really is. That's why we have Good Friday services, because you can't rush past the cross to get to the resurrection. So Jesus died not only to forgive us of our sins, but to break the power of sin. In fact, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, four things are true of you, and they're given in these first three verses. Number one, we no longer serve sin as our, as our master. Number two, we don't have to give in and be overcome by the desires we once had. That's verse two. Number three, we can now live for the will of God. That's verse two. Number four, we can close the book on godless living. That's verse three. Because before Jesus came into our life, we had no power to resist sin. I mean, temptation came along. We just gave into it. We may look strong on the outside, but there's no stability on the inside. And when Christ took up residency in our lives, he not only forgave us, he broke the power of sin in our lives. I heard about a man in, in a prison in England and had been in prison a long, long time. And on a certain day, the Queen of England decided to pardon certain prisoners, and he was one of them. So on that day, a guard came to the door and opened the prison cell and said, hey, this is your lucky day. The Queen has pardoned you. You're free. And he just sat there. And he said, come on, man. What's, what's wrong with you? The, the, you're, you're free to go. And the man just sat there. And the guy said, what is wrong with you? And the man in the cell opened his shirt and a terrible cancer had eaten a hole in his chest. And he said, can the queen do anything about this? You see, it's one thing to believe that on the cross, Jesus died 
to pay the penalty of our sin. But not only that, he died to break the power of sin in our lives. He died, as we sang, to set us free. And he destroys the power, delivers us from the power of sin. You say, well, how, how does Jesus' death help me break the power of sin? In two ways. He died for the penalty of sin. This is called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which means he died as a substitute in our place. Uh, God's way of dealing with sin has always been death. It's the way God deals with sin. In the Garden of Eden, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They eat, they begin to die spiritually, begin to die physically. God kills an animal, just an, an innocent animal there in the garden to cover their sin. God's way of dealing with sin is always death. So Jesus comes lives a perfect life because the wages of sin is death. Jesus bears our sin on the cross and dies. So God looks at us and he sees us forgiven by Jesus. That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He died for me. There's another doctrine. It's called the doctrine of identification. That is, I died with Christ. In some way on the cross, I died and when he rose, I rose. So if God will never abandon Jesus, he will never abandon me. If God is always with Jesus, he's always with me. If God accepted Jesus, he accepts me because I am one with Christ. And when you think this way, when you, as Romans 6 says, if when you count on that, you reckon on that, the power of sin in our lives is broken. So arm yourself with that thought. Any amount of time you spend in the past in sin, it's enough. If you spend a lot of time in your life with sin, that's enough. If you haven't spent much time at all with sin, that's enough. And what we think is this. I know I need to get right with God, and I know I need to do the will of God, but I will do that in another phase of life. No, no. Make the habit, make the break, choose the will of God, get the thought in your head that Christ is worth suffering for. And when you do this, it makes people really uncomfortable. I mean, people look at you and you're not going to the parties anymore. You're not doing the things you used to do. It, it, it's strange not to drink a lot and run wild and lust. Don't you want to have fun anymore? And sometimes people get angry because you have a new goal in life. You've been transformed and they almost feel judged by you. And so they, it says they malign you. What's wrong with Sam? I got religion. The Bible thumper. Goody two-shoes, what they used to say. Next thing you know, he'll be a televangelist. You see the tension here? Peter has said our goal is to live in such a way that it makes the gospel attractive. And yet when you live in that way, people are not only surprised, they get hostile. Many of them. How do you win the world? How do you win the world, which is what we want to do? How can you make your faith attractive to highly resistant people when you look stupid or dull? So a lot of people say, well, you got to look like the world, dress like the world. you got to be like the world. And Peter doesn't get that at all. He says, instead, people are going to malign you. You talk like sex is only for marriage. Good grief. How outdated is that? You talk like two unmarried people shouldn't live together and have sex. Come on. You know, a guy told me many years ago, 
A guy told me uh, this. He said, I'm a man, and a part of my manhood is sex. And you're telling me I should be less of a man until I get married. What would you have said? I don't remember what I said. I know what I would say today. Jesus Christ was the most complete man who ever lived, and he never had sex. Not ever. Peter's out to win unbelievers. He wants them to bring glory to God, but he's not afraid to say you can't win them by joining them in their sin. And he doesn't say you're not going to win them by just not doing all the things they do. Nobody gets saved because you don't look at porn. Nobody gets saved because you don't commit adultery. He says what happens is when you do the things they are not doing, that's when it makes Christianity attractive. That's when people go, that's really, that's beautiful. They give glory to God. Here's the question. Are we, do, are we not just avoiding sin? I mean, that's a given. Are we actually doing something that loves people and blesses people and serves people or engaged in the life of people around us? I heard one uh, pastor say one time, his father was an evangelist, and he said his, his father was, would say, always be so busy being a doer, you don't have time to be a donter. Always saying, don't. I mean, give that, to your, give that to your kids. I hear kids say, all I hear at church is no, 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 no. All I hear at family, my family, no, 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 no. That's not good if that's all they hear. Put them in a car, take them to Ross Elementary, let them tutor some little boys and girls at Ross Elementary. Take them down to Union Mission, let them feed a meal down there. Take them to one of the two abortion clinics in Memphis and let them talk to the women who are trying to get in. That will keep them in church. It's not that we're, we're not to be known for what we don't do only. We're to be known for what we do. The good that we do, the love that we show people, the way we bless people. Your time is running out to do God's will. You don't know when it's going to run out. And then he says, their time is running out. We're not the only ones. The clock is ticking for people who do not believe in Christ. Everyone has a clock above their head. And it is moving toward the day, and if you're not a Christian and it's moving toward the day, then you will stand before the judge of the universe. What should that do for us? What effect should that have on us? If you are not a Christian, if you've never been born again, it should compel you to cry out to God to save you. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The good news is Jesus saves sinners. He really does. It also ought to give a sense of urgency to us about sharing the good news with people. In fact, he talks about people who, the gospel being preached to those who are dead. He's not talking about something that happens after Jesus died. He's talking about people who were alive, they heard the gospel, and then they died, and he said, now they live. So part of sharing the good news with people is to to realize if they don't hear the gospel and believe when they die, it's an awful picture. They don't live with God. So that'll create a sense, and I'll tell you one more thing. Not only should it create a sense of urgency in us, it should help us to know that when people hurt you, they're not getting away with it. And you don't need to be their judge. God will. If you've been fired from your job, if you've had a house burned down, 
If someone has sold drugs to your kids, one of your children has been killed by a careless driver, driver, everything in you rises up and says, that is not right. That's not, they're getting away with it. That's not right. Someone ought to pay. Something should be done about this. So what can you do? You have two choices. You can return evil for evil, or you can do what Jesus did and trust yourself to the one who judges justly and know they will give an account. You see, Jesus on the cross shouldn't have been there. It was a terrible crime to hang the Son of God on a cross. Why didn't he come down? What kept him hanging on the cross when they're doing such wrong? It was the knowledge in part. They, somebody would pay for it. They trusted him. Either their sins would be paid for on the cross or they would pay in hell. But nobody gets away with anything ever. Nobody's ever going to get away with anything finally. Justice will be done. And that feeling that you have of anger when an injustice takes place is right. It's a right thing to feel. It's part of the image of God in you because God becomes angry at injustice. What do you do with it? Especially when it looks like they're getting away with it. They're not. That's the point. The passage has been so helpful to me is Romans 12, 18, which says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have to lose sleep over injustice. There will be no injustice in the end, none. Every sin will be punished, either on the cross or in hell. Nobody gets away with it or anything. This is very peace-giving to you. In fact, it helps you not to be ugly in return to, to someone who is ugly to you. It helps you to bless them because the verse goes on to say, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Putting people in the hands of God for God to deal with them frees you. So many people are doing stuff today, doing things, and they're getting away with it. No, not in the end. So we're to focus on the great business of life, which is influencing people toward Christ with our life and with our words. Your time is running out, along with mine. Their time is running out. And finally, he says, our time is running out. Verse 7 says, there will come a day when the end of all things will take place, and it is at hand. So when Christ returns, we don't know when, at any moment, things will be dealt with. He will set up his kingdom of love and righteousness forever. And we don't know when that might take place. You say, Sam, I've got a question. It says here in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now he wrote that 2,000 years ago. How could he say, I mean, what is this? The end of and my, I, I can give a couple of answers to that, maybe helpful. How can you describe the fact, or how can you explain the fact that the Bible writers say that the coming of Christ is near, and it's not happened for 2,000 years? Well, the same man who wrote this, Peter, over in 2 Peter, says this. He says, a thousand years is like a day with God. So Jesus has only been back in heaven two days, in God's mind. That may help. Probably not. Here's the other thing. 
God has orchestrated events in redemptive history, moving toward an, an end time, a, a, a purpose. There's creation, there's the Old Testament, there's the virgin birth of Jesus and his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the next great event on God's calendar is the return of Christ. So it's always at hand. We don't know. Could happen any moment. It's always at hand. So he says, all of our time is running out for serving the Lord, for doing his will, for doing what, what is, makes our faith attractive. We just don't have a lot of, it's running out. So there are three clocks above everybody's head. There's a clock over my head and many of you that says, I have the time God gives me and I don't know when that will end. There's a clock over the head of every person who is an unbeliever that says, you have the time that God gives you, and no one knows when that might end for you. And then there's a clock over the head of every church that says, you have the time until Christ returns, and it could be any time God's given you the task of taking the good news to all the world, and we don't have forever to do it. There is this sense of urgency. And it's so easy to settle down in this kind of predictable routine where, okay, we'll go to church and, and we forget the great business of life, doing the will of God. Listen, in order for God to use you, you don't have to put a big Jesus save sign in your backyard. You don't have to put bumper stickers all over your car when... Um, it occurred to me in the first service, actually this service, when Jason was reading that passage about Jesus riding the donkey into um, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday this day many years ago, he didn't sit on the mama donkey, he sat on the, the, the colt, the foal, a little donkey that has, had never been ridden by anyone, a wild donkey. And a great Scottish preacher said one time, Jesus has the habit of riding untamed wild donkeys like some of us. Untamed, wild, unbroken, and Jesus loves to ride into town on people like that, people like you. So, what do we do? Well, he says you you pray. He says you love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sin. And when you are under stress, you don't have much res reserve for loving people. So people around you who love you really helps. You practice hospitality. And more and more, we're going to need to do that. It's one of the most effective ways of making Christianity attractive. Uh, someone wrote a, a book entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. <laughs> 